you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 21, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 26 in just a moment. Uh, the book of Acts, uh, chapter 21, and we'll pick up with the first verse in just a moment. Um, obviously, I, I, I did not know uh, what was in store uh, today, uh, given the consistent nature of my theology, God did. And so um, uh, we are thankful for that. It does seem like, the blink of an eye, that Thursday, about 11.15, 20 years ago, I stepped into the pulpit of what was then Center Crest Baptist Church. And I read that which the Apostle Paul wrote so long ago, there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that I determined, to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I would pray that for 20 years, that is what I have done. Uh, that uh, soon I will pass from the scene and the message of the gospel will remain. Whatever happens to me as we see in these chapters from the book of Acts, he winds up being a prisoner for the Lord. But his outlook was this, that while he could be bound by chains, the Word of God was what? Not bound. Never has been and never will. And for that, we do give thanks. So today we don't go back to 1 Corinthians 2, but we do go back to an account of Paul's work for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to be sure, our Bible is full of both great stories and great characters. All are present, all are pre preserved in the Word of God to point to one central character, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and one ultimate story, the redemption accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I must admit as we turned our attention a couple of weeks uh, back, turned our attention uh, back to uh, the book of Acts, I knew what was ahead, and I, I was a bit anxious about these uh, final chapters of uh, the book of Acts. If I were a, a filmmaker, I could be very excited. If I were a history teacher, I could be very excited because the, the stories are indeed dramatic, they're informative, and even they're relevant and applicable. However, how do we make the necessary connections to Jesus Christ and Him crucified? How do we legitimately preach the text in which certainly the Apostle Paul is prominent, but Jesus is the star of this narrative and every other text of Scripture? We're always reminded of the words of Spurgeon, take every text and make a beeline to the cross. That is, let us avoid the exhortations to be a courageous warrior like Paul, be a powerful proclaimer like Paul, be an insightful apologist like Paul, even be a compassionate shepherd as Paul. We preach from this text and every other text, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let us attempt to do justice to Luke's account of Paul's travails that were all embraced and endured with a view to knowing Christ and making Him known. 
Paul's opposition and his obstacles were proportionate to his resolute proclamation of the gospel. Seemingly, the greater the oppression, the greater the affliction, the greater assaults upon him, the greater the grace upon grace that was lavished on him. Indeed, he found, and we have and we will find, that God's grace is indeed sufficient no matter the season of sorrow and suffering. So read with me, if you will, beginning in verse 1. And when, when we had parted from them and set sail, uh, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, and they said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, and we and the people were urged, uh, urged him not to go to Jerusalem, and then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, we went in with us to, or Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are in amongst the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. 
But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. It is indeed that which you have given so that we may know you. God, I pray that we would find in your words the very words of eternal life, God, that you would show yourself to us as high and lifted up, that you indeed would be glorified, and we, your people, would be transformed. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is interesting, and it must be significant, that almost a third of the book of Acts was devoted to the details of Paul's arrest at the insistence of the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, and then how it came to be that he would be transported to the capital city of Rome, not only to be tried, but to bear witness to the Gentile world of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul, by the time of his journey to Jerusalem, had spent about 25 years fulfilling the very words of the Lord found in Acts 9.15 that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so here we find him probably in the spring of about 58 AD. And he leaves Ephesus, he goes back over to Europe, there to the peninsula of Greece and makes his way uh, back through Macedonia. And he determines that at the end of what we typically speak of as his third missionary journey, that he should raise funds to give as an offering from the Gentile churches to the church at Jerusalem, both as a practical way of helping them in their time of great difficulty due to famine and even persecution, but also as a testimony that there's one Lord and there's one gospel and there's one church. And so uh, Paul determines that he wants to uh, leave and return uh, to uh, Jerusalem. He wants to arrive there by the time of Pentecost. He wants to give uh, this offering to the leadership of the church there. And he knows that upon arrival, that life is going to be incredibly difficult, that he is going to be persecuted for the sake of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in these first 15 verses, we find a summary of Paul's travel log. It's interesting to me that as beautiful uh, of the area of the world as these Mediterranean regions are. Some of you I know have traveled through uh, Greece and across the Aegean Sea and around what is now Turkey and over into what we call the, the Holy Land. And you have seen the, the rugged beauty 
of the area. And Paul, for the most part, really doesn't mention it. Luke doesn't mention it in his writings. And it, it kind of stood out as a contrast to me. I'm reading a book right now by Stephen Ambrose. If you don't recognize that name, he was largely behind the World War II Museum in New Orleans. And in writing this account of the Lewis and Clark expedition, they are charged by President Thomas Jefferson to write down everything. Tell me about the water, tell me about the trees, tell me about the plants, tell me about the Indians, tell me about the geography, the geology, the typography. You tell me everything. And I think that uh, the, the records of the Lewis and Clark expedition is about eight volumes, I believe, if I'm, I think I'm correct. So they were meticulous in writing down everything that they saw and everything that they experienced. What was Paul's concern and what was Luke's concern? That there is a world out there in which the majority of the people in this world need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that that is what I have been appointed to do. I am not a sightseer, but I am a proclaimer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, my life is in his hands. And so, announcing that he wants to be in Jerusalem at Pentecost, and I do think I'm not, I don't play it up much, but I do think it is, is very much the story of Paul, the travel to Jerusalem, is intended to somewhat in some way parallel the final days of our Lord Jesus Christ as he did what? Set his face towards Jerusalem. That, that I am going there, I have an appointment. I have that which God has ordained that awaits me in Jerusalem, and I will pursue it with great conviction, and again, great commitment. And so he goes, and we get the travel details here, uh, beginning there in verse 1, after this very poignant meeting with these Ephesian elders, which we took time to unpack over the course of three weeks. We're told uh, that he travels basically from Miletus to Tyre, and the specifics are from Miletus uh, to cause. Now, one of the interesting things, what he's going to tell us in the first part of this journey by sea or by, by boat, is at that time of year, the prevailing winds go from north to south. And so they set a course just along the coastline of Turkey. And, and by the way, those of you that don't pay attention to sermons and know where the book of maps is in the back of your Bible, if you want to go to the map of Paul's third missionary journey, you can kind of follow uh, this uh, bit, okay? It might, might make it more alive to you. But uh, Paul journeys along the coastline. He has uh, the north to south winds, and they carry him uh, along and carry his company uh, along from uh, Miletus to Kaz and then uh, to Rhodes. Many of you are familiar with the Colossus uh, at Rhodes and then on to uh, Patera and it's from there. They decide he, he uh, is able to book passage on what presumably is a larger ship and they're going to cut across about 400 miles and go uh, to uh, Phoenicia. They're going to make a 400-mile journey across the open sea. At least one commentator, commentator noted this, that most likely that they were traveling during the time of the full moon, and that that boat 
would have traveled night and day. They would have never anchored at night, but they would have traveled night and day, so it took them about seven days to traverse that 400-mile stretch uh, to uh, Phoenicia. And so they arrive there, and again, they go from Tyre to Ptolemaeus, and from Ptolemaeus to uh, Caesarea, and then ultimately they make that final uh, journey uh, to uh, Caesarea. And so they, uh, he pauses there in Caesarea. He's a little bit ahead of schedule. Again, I stated that he wanted uh, to uh, arrive there uh, in Jerusalem on Pentecost. And so he has time to uh, spend some time uh, there in uh, that city uh, with uh, the disciples there. And so that's kind of the travel log. Now let's look a little more closely at the, the warnings and the pleas and the prophecy. Paul knew what was ahead. If you look back at verse 22, chapter 20, what we looked at last week, he said, I know, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, and not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So no backing down. I'm going, fully aware, fully embracing that which God has ordained uh, for me. Now look at verse 4 of our text here in 21. He seeks out uh, these disciples at Tyre. Just a, a small aside here. Tyre is noted in Ezekiel chapter 26, 27, and 28 as a part of the prophecy regarding its destruction for its wickedness. Jesus alludes to it in indicting the Jews and said, again, if the people of Tyre and Sidon had seen and heard what you've seen and heard, they would have repented and not been destroyed in the course of history. Many of you are aware also in Ezekiel 28, many feel like there's some kind of analogy between this description of Tyre and its king and the fall of Satan uh, from heaven. And so, he goes to Tyre, and indeed, there has been uh, a church uh, planted. Uh, there are disciples there, and they begin to tell Paul what? Look at verse 4. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So Paul knows, he is convicted, he is compelled he is under the full influence of God's Holy Spirit, filled with God's Holy Spirit. This is what I must do. And yet, presumably, others who were filled by the Spirit was warning him what? Don't go. We, we, we don't want you uh, to die. And I never tried to resolve these tensions and paradoxes and antinomies and all of these type of things. It's just a reality. Uh, that people were concerned for Paul, and they were concerned for his safety, but he was resolute. He wanted to do exactly what he would write about in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, namely Jesus, the power of his resurrection, and may share his, in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. In Colossians 1.24, he would speak of filling up in his flesh that which remains of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, please, he had no idea no view that in some way he was making an atonement for sin. When Jesus said, it is finished, guess what? It was finished. 
Okay, but, but Paul is aware that, that the people of God, in following their Lord Jesus Christ, that God has ordained a certain measure, a certain prescription of suffering that God has ordained, that God has even brought about so that He may receive the glory by our perseverance through all of the difficulties and all of the challenges, even though the gates of hell shall come against His church, again, it they shall never, have not, will not, cannot ever prevail against uh, the church. And in all of these types of persecutions and or afflictions, we make a bit of distinction. Life in a fallen world is by definition what? An afflicted life. Now, since many of you have known me a long time, and some of you haven't seen me in a while, it is obvious that somebody mentioned the last time I saw you, your hair wasn't so gray. And so that is an affliction of living in a fallen world. And Paul can say of all of it, where it is, whether it is persecution specifically for my commitment and my testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ, or whether it's just the realities of life in a fallen world, these things happened to us that we may not rely upon ourselves, but upon God who raises the dead. Now, I'm shocked. Maybe all of your vision is as bad as mine. But this is not the mark of the beast on my forehead. Um, you know, it's, it, it is a reminder that I am 65 years old, that I'm absent-minded, and I'm clumsy. And so I walked in to the back of Zach's uh, hatch on his car. Uh, I don't remember hitting it. I just remember sitting on my backside in the driveway of my house, and I started seeing splots of blood pooling on the concrete beside me. And my first thought was, we're going to play golf, and I'm going to have to go to the emergency room and get a stitch in my head, and we're not going to make it to play golf this afternoon. And so he went and got my dirty towel, Gary, off of my golf bag to get the blood to stop, and thankfully it did, and all, was hurt. all that was really hurt was my pride. And so, uh, again, but a reminder, reminder, these afflictions come to us. Now, I'm fully responsible for not paying attention, okay? My fault, it wasn't Zach's fault, it's my fault. But God ordained before all, before all worlds were created, that this affliction, minor as it was and is, would come to me. But it is a reminder of the fragility of life and that we do indeed all live on God's timetable. And so they plead, no conflict between the work of the Spirit, just they are concerned, but Paul is committed. He has a purpose. He has a place to go to give testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he stays there kind of at the, the, the very end of his uh, journey there. He stays with Philip. And if you'll notice there in verses 8 and 9, he's identified as Philip the evangelist. He's one of the seven. You remember uh, back in uh, the earlier chapters of Acts, Acts 6, I believe, there's this appointment. Sometimes we think of them maybe as deacons. It really doesn't say they were deacons, but they had kind of deacon-like uh, ministries to serve uh, the widows of the church. 
Philip was one of these, and we have the record of his evangelism of that Ethiopian uh, eunuch. And so uh, he had uh, come uh, to uh, Caesarea, and he ministered uh, there, and Paul is able to minister to him. One of the circles, it would seem to me, that gets completed here. Why was Philip and the other disciples dispersed from Jerusalem? It was was because a man named Saul stood there and consented to the martyrdom of one we remember as Stephen. And then he persecuted uh, the church. And so Philip is forced out of Jerusalem. He winds up in Caesarea. And as luck would have it, right? That's a good theological word, isn't it? God in his wonderful providence saw to it that Philip was there to meet Paul. Can you, I wonder what they would have talked about. I wonder in these 2,000 years, Philip, Paul, and even Stephen, well, how'd you get here? If y'all will remember, how'd you get here? Well, Paul, I I preached everywhere. Philip, I preached everywhere. Stephen, I would have, but Paul came along. I mean, no, no. How'd you get here? The man on the middle cross said, I could come. Amen? Amen. Okay. So, we see him there, and, and we're introduced once again to a character we saw back in chapter 11, one named Agabus, who comes and again warns the Apostle Paul once again, no, no real shock to Paul, verse 11. He does something kind of like at least Ezekiel, maybe others of uh, the Old Testament uh, prophetic office. They act out dramatically that which they want revealed. And so he takes Paul's belt, or maybe some of you uh, have translation girdle, probably the, the, the article of clothing that men would use to tie around their uh, waist and to hitch up their, the flowing robes so they could either work or walk. And so uh, Agabus takes that and he binds up uh, Paul's uh, feet and hands and says, this, this is the me- message of the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews will bind the man that owns this belt, and they will deliver him to the hands of the Gentile. So once again, what do we see? What are we reminded of? I'm going to Jerusalem. And in in essence, the entirety of the world is going to conspire against the one who would proclaim the gospel. Who conspired against Jesus? Jew, Gentile. Who is going to conspire against Paul? Well, it's the Jew and the Gentile. And so they, they plea for, for Paul to change his plans there in uh, verse, verse 12. And what does he say? Why are you breaking my heart? Why, why? And I think even maybe, why, why are you bothering me with this? As he would write later. For me to live is Christ. To die is 
gain. And so what does he say? I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I think very much paralleling, Jesus sets his face uh, toward Jerusalem and, and even announces, hey, it's just not fitting for a prophet to be persecuted, but in any other place but uh, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets, you stone the ones who bring God's message to you. And Paul, once again, as he had already written, probably just even weeks earlier, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For indeed, it is the power of God to salvation. For what? The Jew first. The Jew first. So once again, he goes right into the very stronghold of Judaism to preach that for which he's ashamed. Now, sometimes we tie ourselves up in knots over these things. We shouldn't. Uh, it is clearly the testimony of Scripture. But in those wonderful chapters of the book of Romans, Romans 9 and 10 and 11, where Paul unpacks this great mysterious reality of God's sovereign purpose in salvation, uh, that God has chosen before all worlds have begun, that he will save some through the preaching of the gospel. But yet Paul can say with equal conviction that I would just be accursed for the sake of my kinsmen, for, for my fellow Jews, the privileges that they have had, and yet they have distorted, they have perverted, and they have rejected them. And as he goes on to explain, why is it they reject God? Well, again, on one hand, because they want to. What's my motto? People always do what they want to do. And let me tell you what the problem is with you and with me. It's what I want to do. Right? And certainly for the unbeliever that does not have the Spirit of God, the problem is what? What they want to do or what they don't want to do. Okay? And so he can say that, but he also says what? To the entirety of the nation, God gave what is called a spirit of stupor. He's quoting from the Old Testament prophets that, that they are blinded and they cannot see the glory of God revealed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would write in that Roman letter in chapter 15, you pray. Now, I'm going to Jerusalem. I have an idea of what's ahead, okay? Uh, and I think he knew really clearly what was ahead. I don't think it was just this kind of anxious, foreboding sense. I think he really had a clear vision of what was ahead. But he told the church in Rome, now you pray for me so that what? so that I will be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. I'm going there knowing they're going to persecute me, but you pray that I'll be delivered. And, and again, I think most Bible scholars and commentators feel like that he probably was released from what's going to amount to this imprisonment ultimately uh, in Rome. And so Paul announces this commitment to, again, charge right into the stronghold of uh, the enemy there in Jerusalem. Why? For the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For, for, for the testimony to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think probably most of you know when you see something like this, the name of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. 
represents everything about his character and everything about his accomplishment, all of his authority and all the power. We use that kind of concept the same way. I, again, I was able to uh, go up to my hometown, to Somerville, for just a, an overnight trip. And I didn't have time to do this. But had I made a journey to Jim's Drive-In or some of the other local establishments there, somebody would have said something about my daddy, who's been dead for 15 years. You know what? He had a good name. He had a good name. It, a name, the, the name Bryce Evans means something even now because it represented his character. All right? And so the, he does everything for the name, for the person and work, the accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ. The name that represents the fullness of God and his revelation of himself. And there's a correspondence. We could kind of unpack this. That name is in essence the gospel of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus is essential and intrinsic to the gospel. It is what's referred to earlier in the book of Acts as uh, the way. Again, I think an allusion to Jesus' words, the way he, that he is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. It's consistent with what Paul said to those elders at Miletus. It's the whole counsel of God summed up in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is again from Acts 20, the word of his grace. It is indeed the word of God. It is the word that must be preached. It is that word, and y'all know this is one of my favorite analogies, images, illustration. It is that word, it is the testimony to that name that is the imperishable seed of the new birth. I, I don't know, that one just gets me. Listen, for 20 plus years, and again, I remember, and I see some of you here that, that heard me say this, you're calling me to do something I'm completely incapable of doing. I can't convert one single soul. Now, again, some of you know me a long time. I can be pretty manip manipulative and persuasive and hard-headed and a lot of things you can say about me, okay? But none of that can cause a person to be born again. That's the work of the Spirit in the Word. I'm a seed sower. I'm a seed sower, and thank God that that seed is far more product productive than those lettuce seeds that I put out a few weeks ago because I ain't seen nothing. I ain't seen nothing from those lettuce seeds, okay? Not a sprig, not a sprout. But the Word of God does not return void. It is that Word that must be preached. It is the name proclaimed so that we may be innocent of the blood of all men. Amen. Yeah. That, that, that is our goal. That we have told all who would come under our influence, all that we would have the privilege to tell them about the name, about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In doing that, again, as Paul mentioned in Acts 20, calling them, calling them to repentance and faith. Again, as Peter would preach, there is no name given among men, whereby we must be saved. And so, he accepts the will of God. Again, Luke's very interested in that. If you'll remember Peter's Pentecost sermon, Jesus Christ according to what? The set purpose and foreknowledge. This, he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 
And again, just as much that which God has ordained for Paul is according to his set plan and foreknowledge that God in Paul's life and in every believer's life is working all things according to the counsel of his own will. He is working all things for the good of those who know him and love him. So, you know, we would avoid anything that would smack of fatalism. It doesn't matter what I do, it's just going to turn out that way. I mean, that is as silly a notion as you cranking your car and putting in drive and closing your eyes and say, car, just take me where you will. Yeah, silly. So it's not fatalism. It is the trust in a personal God that has not only designed creation, but he has designed the paths upon which we will walk through this creation until the day he does what? He calls us home. So it's not fatalism. It's not self-determination. But again, responsibility in light of God's commands and the resolute confidence he will never leave us nor will he ever forsake us. Paul, again, even hearing that which indeed broke his heart, was resolute. This is my purpose, to again proclaim Jesus Christ and crucified. Let's look at this final issue there, beginning in verse 17. The arrival and discussion and controversy. So Paul eventually... After this long journey, he arrives in Jerusalem. He meets with James. James, not the apostle. James, the apostle, has been dead for many years. This is James, the Lord's brother, who is pastor of that church in Jerusalem. And here's an interesting thing. You know, if y'all, if y'all miss Wednesday night Bible study, you're missing a lot of fun, okay, and, and, and a lot of good stuff, a lot of question and answer. And I, you know me, I love to answer questions. But we got to talking a little bit about apostles. And, of course, we've been talking about elders as it pertains to what went on in chapter 20. It is interesting that one who, without question, even though he is untimely born, is definitively an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet seemingly at least respects the leadership, the eldership of the church at Jerusalem. He, he wants their approval. He wants there to be unity. He's willing to go in and explain to them, this is what I've been doing. This is the message. This is the result of that message. And he's really going to submit to that which they suggest as a resolution to the issues, to the questions as to what Paul had been doing and what Paul had been uh, preaching. And so he goes to uh, uh, Jerusalem. He, he meets with James. It says the, the, uh, all the elders were present. And some people think maybe the Jerusalem church had 70 elders. So that's, that's a whole bunch of them. I don't, I don't know I'd ever want to deal with 70 preachers, but, you know, you know me. I don't like them very much. So, so uh, they greet. He, he gives his story, his testimony of what had been going on. They glorified God. Now, look at verse 20. And I went back and, and looked uh, at the, uh, the Greek. Now, I, I didn't have a, an original manuscript or anything like that, just uh, my thing on my iPhone. But it says, 
They glorify God, and, and to me, it seems like there ought to be a but. Like, yeah, it's great, Paul, but, but it's an and. It's not the strong contrastive, it's the connective contra- uh, conjunction. And so they said to them, okay, there, there are many thousands among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Uh-oh. We have a problem, Houston. Yeah, it's all nice and good. Uh, but there's still some issues here, Paul. And, and here's the thing. They have all been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Which was what? A lie. That's not what Paul had been doing. Now, certainly, he, he has some strong opinions about the nature of the law, the purpose of the law, and in fact, at some level, the uselessness of the law. Now, we've talked a lot about law and gospel. The law exposes our sin. And folks, until you're convicted about the fact you are a sinner, you do not need a Savior. Okay? God only saves lost people. And the mechanism by which God convicts us that we're lost and needs a Savior is the law. I mean, would anybody like to give up, stand up and give me a testimony? You know, Tim, I've never told a lie. I've, I've never had an impure thought. And in fact, I can go all the way back to my mom and daddy. I never, ever dishonored. I mean, y'all get the gist of it, right? All the law does is tell me this what? I need a Savior. I need a Savior. That, that's what I need. I, I need the one whose name is Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross uh, for me. And so that is not what Paul was doing to tell them to disregard, but he wanted to make sure. And I, folks, I think this danger is still present in what, what we call the church today. And as I often say, and my friends tell me, Tim, you're too proud of this, but I'm going to keep saying it. This is why people don't like me very much. But the warning that, hey, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, then Christ will be of no value to you. If you think there's something that you do or have done that's contributing to your salvation, you're lost. I don't care what it is. Well, I prayed, and bro, I walked out, I baptized. No. God saved you. God saved you. You received it by faith. But we still are perpetuating the same era that we allow people to think it's something you did and you didn't do anything, but just become convinced you're a sinner who needs a Savior. And that Savior's name is Jesus Christ. That's Paul's understanding of the law. And so presenting the problem, they have a solution. It's to go through certain rituals. I don't think this was a Nazarite vow, but simply a cleansing from his encounters and excursions in the Gentile territory. But again, he submits to their wisdom. And so he goes, and he goes through uh, the prescribed uh, ritual. It's interesting that they don't really say a a lot or anything about this great offering that Paul was concerned with. Uh, Luke is concerned with this issue. Paul's in Jerusalem. And there are those that are angry and upset with Paul. And in future days, we're going we're to see. We're going to see how this plays out. So let's close out in just a couple of, couple of points of interest. Was Paul disobedient to the Word? Y'all know that I'm a fan of the late pastor of 10th Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, James Montgomery Boyce. He is so bold to say, and I, I don't, that he thinks Paul made a mistake. That he didn't have any business going to Jerusalem. 
And I, I think he's wrong there, but it's an interesting thought. Was Paul pursuing this pattern of the Lord Jesus going to Jerusalem and be persecuted? Well, I think so. Should he have submitted to this ritual, this cleansing ritual? Now, Paul is very clear that all of the gospel is what? Fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing left for you to do to contribute to your salvation. Anything you contribute that you think might contribute to your salvation is actually deducted, in a sense, from your salvation, okay? And, and so, should he have, I think it is an interesting question. Should he have, should he have done what they told him to do? That's, that's a good one. And you can think about it, and you can answer it. The Bible doesn't answer it, uh, but it's interesting. Uh, what would Tim Evans have said? Y'all need to mind your own business. You know, I, I don't know. I don't think he made a mistake, really, but it's just an interesting thing. And so Paul completes his mission, his mission and his ministry. He is absolutely living out the reality of what Jesus said. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He was going to pursue this reality. He experienced what Jesus said. Listen, don't think I came, came to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace. Right? I came to bring division. It's going to divide up families. It's going, to, it's going to divide up every entity that you can think of. And Paul is what? He's going to be at odds with most of his fellow countrymen for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, he would write in his final letter, not only is the Word of God not bound, but I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect. Now, we would never deny that Paul is a unique figure in the history of the church. He was converted in one sense a dramatic way. And yet, in another sense, he was converted as all of us have been converted who have ever been converted. I can remember as a kid, one of the lines you would hear, well, I'll be converted when I have a Damascus Road experience. All right? Well, let me tell you something. If you're converted... You did. Oh, it may not have heard it occurred in a desert. It may, you may not have seen the blinded light and heard a voice. But you met the resurrected Christ. And you trusted Him as your Lord and Savior. The same way the Apostle Paul did. He was courageous. He was convictional. And he was committed to endure that which God ordained. Again, Paul went to Jerusalem for the name of above all names. The name that will provoke the bowing of every knee and silence the excuses of every tongue. The name that will be universally confessed by the redeemed and by the condemned. That Jesus Christ indeed is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings to the glory of God the Father. That's why. That's the purpose. That's why Paul went to Jerusalem and ultimately, that's why we, each of us, every one of us, that's why we live, for the glory of God the Father, to the testimony of the gospel of His Son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is a revelation of a salvation that is by grace, through faith, 
in your Son, Jesus Christ. That it is indeed not of works. None of us could boast about the fact that we are saved, that we've been born again, that we've been redeemed, we've been converted, we have believed. We can't brag about any of that because it's all of your grace. It's all instrumentally a result of someone taking the Word of God and so explaining it to us that your Spirit came and worked in, in us so that we did what? So that we believed. And so to you, we give all the glory, not to the Apostle Paul and not to anyone else, but we pray that you would get all the glory for the sake of your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.